Hello and welcome to the Free Like Me podcast by FLM. This podcast aims to help people like you navigate the world of financial planning. We'll be delving into things that we and our clients care about, talking about hot topics and inviting you to get to know our team a little bit better. Welcome back everyone to part two of the inheritance tax series. So today I'm joined by two of my colleagues. We've got Ed Gascoigne, who's a Chartered Senior Financial Planner here, and we've also got Trish Harani, who is a tax advisor here at FLM. So welcome to you both. Hello there, Caitlin. Hi. Hi. So in the previous episode, we explored the ins and outs of inheritance tax, you know, what it is, uh, the basics of how it works. But today we wanted to just go one step further and actually talk a little bit more around the planning elements. Um, so the big question on this front, over to you, Ed, is is where should you start in that initial step with planning? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think um, the first thing I would say is that inheritance tax planning um, isn't something that, that, that everybody gets round to. Um, but I would imagine it truly is something that everybody kind of wishes or everybody's family wishes they that they had got around to it and i think i think one of the key difficulties is that without getting too morbid too early you know it kind of it requires one to contemplate one's own mortality um and as humans we're not in my opinion that well coded to do that perhaps really until our latest years the the opportunity with with inheritance tax planning and, and, and intergenerational planning, though, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this more today, is is really, you know, a few years earlier than that. It's these years when, when if you have children, they're maybe in their 40s and 50s. You've maybe got grandchildren who are still of a school age. And I think it's amazing what one can do in this space um, but to get there just requires a really positive conversation in the first instance with with somebody that helps kind of unlock unlock the treasure chest of opportunity. Absolutely. And and who would you say then, if, if we are going to open up these conversations, Trish, that we should be getting involved in in those conversations and the and the planning process? I think I think it's a a double-edged prong kind of thing right so you want to have a financial advisor involved because they're going to be telling you about the different types of products and stuff that you can use to make more wealth as well as making sure it's that IHT efficient but on the flip side you also want a tax advisor involved because they're going to know all the ins and outs of all the detailed rules that there are about inheritance tax what you can do what you can't do what classes as being inside your estate and what's outside so I think they both need to work together to help you achieve the goal that you're trying to reach. Yeah, and I think something we touched on in the last episode was how actually involving a third party who's, you know, neutral ground as such can it can be really helpful in having what might otherwise be a, a difficult conversation, as you alluded to, Ed, you know, discussing one's own mortality. Then you've got the complications around the different relationships within a family and and some people do find that conversation really quite awkward so so getting someone else involved who is qualified and uh, is going to be able to come in purely looking at the the financials as opposed to any emotional 
ties can be really helpful, I think. Yeah, I think I think I think both definitely score though, Caitlin. So you know, I've got a I've I've got a, um, a video call in a couple of weeks' time um, with a couple that we've just started to help who are in their kind of mid late fifties. Um, their children are in their kind of mid late twenties, and I think it's going to be a really productive call in that we have those two generations of the family. On the call, we have we have myself and a colleague of mine, Sam, who I think's been on the pod before. I suppose as as professional third party, helping to guide and curate the discussion. But one thing I would observe in this space is that whilst a financial planner, a tax advisor, um, can cite the factual reasons for why one should do certain things. That that isn't how people take these decisions, right? We as human beings, we take decisions based on emotion. Um, that's what ultimately leads us to take action. And I suppose the only thing I would observe here is that gifting money at the risk of stating the obvious means you don't have it anymore. There's a certain finality to it. So you're asking somebody to contemplate the fact that one day they will pass. And you're also asking somebody to gift some money that they've worked very hard to achieve. Um, and so there's an awful lot of stars that have to align to make positive traction in this space. But, and again, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about this. I think anything that one can do in one's own lifetime just gives added visibility and enjoyment versus any gifts that one makes through one's will. Um, and that's, and that's really why I think this kind of advice is, is so very valuable. It's not just the monetary savings, but it's the incremental emotional enjoyment and utility of the money that we've worked so hard to accrue. Absolutely. But on that note then, Ed, well, how, when we, we touch on gifting, how would, would, would one use it and how would they start planning with gifting and, and when really? Um, okay, so I think there's two schools of thought. Um, I'll talk about kind of I'll talk about unadvised and then I'll talk about advised if that's okay. So often we will meet people kind of referred to us and they have maybe already begun IHT planning. They probably didn't brand it as that. They probably didn't badge it up as that, but they've perhaps given some money a generation down to help with the first house deposit. Maybe they've started to help with the grandchildren's school fees. Um, but what's happened here? <clears throat> most probably, is that the client has identified something that they want their money to achieve for them and they've gone out and done it because that's how we make decisions, right? We see something that we like and we do it. Um, from an advised standpoint, identifying those life goals is still the first step. We need to understand what a client values, what matters to the client most before we do anything else. But the secondary step, I think, with help, with professional advice, centers around, you know, effectively a feasibility study of sustainability of income for the client that we're advising. Do you already have more than enough to last you for the rest of your life, however long that may be? irrespective of market conditions and the sequence of investment returns that you achieve. And for me, if, if I can help a client understand that, that's when I get really excited in this space because I can truly and mathematically evidence to a client that they do have enough 
I can evidence by how much they have enough. And we can then bring that, if you like, into a separate pot or bucket of budget for those things in their life that they've told me they'd like to be able to achieve. So I think there's a couple of ways that it comes about, um, which is hopefully helpful. Yeah, definitely. Trisha, it, on that front, what what would you be thinking about from a tax perspective when a, when a client would be starting to discuss their gifting plans? So like Ed was excited about using his softwares to do the planning and working out what they need for a lifetime. We get excited in the tax team when we have to do IHT planning and working out how we can reduce the bill. Um, there's loads of things to consider. So whether what like there's certain gifts that are exempt from IHT and they help take money out of the estate straight away. There's other gifts which will start like a seven-year clock, which you might have touched on in the previous podcast. Um, and with the, if the person dies within the seven years, then obviously it's going to be subject to tax again. But then there's tapering involved. And then there's, depending on what they're trying to achieve, like if someone's giving straight into a trust, there might be an immediate tax liability that they need to think about. Um, so we would look at, I guess, following on from what Ed said, we would look at what they're trying to achieve, what they want to do with their wealth, if there's any excess wealth, and then try and take advantage of what exemptions and availability there is to minimise any tax implications for them going forward. Do you want to add anything there, Ed? I think there's something that I often cite to clients um, and and remarkably, um, it's something that Gordon Brown said, you know, it's kind of a Labour Chancellor, but Gordon Brown talked about IHT as the optional tax, which will sound completely counterintuitive when we look at the fact we now have a Tory government who are increasing tax rates to pay for the COVID deficit. It was a Labour Chancellor who described IHT as the optional tax. and And what he really meant was that it's the most planable tax. It's the tax that one can have the most time and thought and strategy to to effectively plan around. Um, and, and and one of the questions I often get asked about clients is on is on is on tax evasion or tax avoidance. Um, I assume that those buzzwords are going to set off some sort of filter um in the in 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 the apple pod store or wherever this lives so i'm sorry for that but um <laughs> but that, that that isn't what this type of planning is by any stretch of the imagination and the reason there are exemptions on gifting the reason there are a nil rate bands of taxation is that we mustn't forget that we've worked and paid tax already to accrue this wealth if it's from earned income, we've paid income tax. If it's from capital gains, we've paid capital gains tax. We've probably already paid as well national insurance contributions. Um, so planning here isn't just a question of avoiding tax on money that is yours. It's avoiding further tax on money that's yours after you've been taxed already. And the money doesn't leave the system. The money simply transitions to another generation another generation that will achieve return on the money themselves, pay tax on the money themselves. So there is nothing there is nothing untoward in IHT planning. It's simply a question of becoming the most efficient version of yourself and ensuring that the asset value that transitions either to your family, to your friends, or to philanthropic causes that you want to support um, is as great as possible, um, rather than a large portion of the estate filtering to a beneficiary that, 
that perhaps you wouldn't have named yourself in your will. Absolutely. And it's something we touched on in the last episode as well, where if you have multiple children, it might end up that HMRC take a bigger slice of the pie than than each of those children individually, which is something that we can often see as well. Yeah, I think I, I think for me, when when I talk with clients around around this space, as I've as I've touched on, I want to begin with what matters most to the client. Then I want to help achieve true mathematical visibility of feasibility, irrespective of market conditions. Because I think that's important. I think you want to allow for the the bad times as well as the good before you tell something that somebody they truly can afford to give. And after that, there are a few things that you can do with your money, right? So the first thing I always say is, are you sure you don't want to spend some more? Right? And And, and that might sound counterintuitive from a financial planner, but are you really sure that there is nothing more that you want to squeeze out of life whilst you're here that requires some financial commitment because you can afford to do it. You've earned yourself this opportunity to do that. Um, and sometimes that will, sometimes that gets a giggle. Sometimes that will find a, you know, a trip of a lifetime that perhaps a couple had never committed to. But often we'll get this response of, no, do you know, Ed, truly we're, we're very fortunate. We, we have everything that we want. This, this really is surplus. So, if you're not going to spend it, then it becomes a question of, okay, um, so at the moment, this is the sum that you're earmarking for HMRC. This is how much you're effectively willing to HMRC on current course and speed. Now, I'm not, I'm, it's not for me to tell a client whether that's right or wrong. It's for me to ask the question. The question is, is, is that deliberate? Is this a sum of money that you wish to leave to HMRC? And again, both both answers are, are right. It's the client's prerogative. They've earned the money, not me. If the client says, yes, Ed, that's, that's what I want to do, that's great. Things are set up appropriately. If the client says, actually, Ed, I'd never really thought of it like that. No, that isn't necessarily what I'd choose to do. What are my options? Then, then we progress to the next stage. And and I don't mean I, I I don't mean or intend to make these conversations sound formulaic because truly they're not they're they're hugely emotive they they're not easy conversations to have but there is an underlying and solid methodology that that it, if observed can really ensure that this space is is tackled in the best way possible. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting how how you say it, it really is up to that individual as to what their what their goals and needs are and how they view money. And a lot of those opinions can be formed by, you know, the upbringing and childhood that they had. Um, and yeah, I do see big differences, particularly in, in individuals who have built and grown wealth themselves versus those individuals who might have, have been given a leg up in life um, as well. And they view inheritances very differently. Um, and I actually read recently that uh, Daniel Craig, and I'm, I'm not sure the extent of his estate, but I imagine it is rather vast, uh, is actually planning to leave no money at all to his children. Um, he is either going to spend it or, or give it to charity, which I thought was really interesting. And, and I do come across people that have that view as well. You know, a lot of people I speak to say, I don't want to ruin my children's lives. I want them to understand the value of 
of work and, and earning money themselves. So as you say, Ed, it is really, really different depending on which individual you're talking to. And there are no two two circumstances that are identical. There's the, there's a there's a great book, Caitlin, that I'd recommend on the subject. So um, there's a book called Die With Zero, written by um, an American chap called Bill Perkins, who's kind of a very successful venture capitalist um, and, and said with love, a less successful poker player. Um, he's, he's actually quite a talented poker player, but he just fulfills that role of there's no point being the ninth best player in the world if you sit at a table with the eight players that are better than you. It would be fair to say that Bill isn't, Bill isn't shy of, uh, of jumping in a tough game, but, but Die With Zero talks about these kind of ideas. It, 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 it talks about this idea that we accrue things. Why do we accrue things? Well, we need some things in the first instance to make life safer or more comfortable. But after a point in time, we just accrue for accrual's sake. And, and what Bill talks about in Die With Zero is, is this idea of the experiential, you know, the things that we can achieve whilst we're on Earth that we look back on with genuine fondness. You know, that lunch that we had with some close friends of ours or that charity that we supported and then attended an event with where we saw the fruits of the donation that we made. Um, now, do I think, you know, do I think Bill will actually die with zero? Um, I think it would take, I think it would take some doing. I know he's a family man and he's got two daughters, but it is, it is interesting that you touch as well on this idea of um, the fact that transfer of wealth, whilst perceived at outset, of course, as a net positive can, if managed inappropriately, can carry some, can carry some threats and some difficulties when 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 young individuals kind of pick up wealth for the first time. Absolutely. And I think, again, that uh, leads us nicely onto another area of planning that we can touch on, which is the use of trusts, which allow greater flexibility and control as to, A, when assets are passed down and also how that money is then ultimately used. Um, so, Trish, what do you usually talk to your clients about when when touching on trust planning? Um, usually we just go through how the mechanics of a trust will work because although they're great for removing assets from your estate, there are other implications that you need to be aware of, obviously. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess it's a great way to pass the assets on, but without giving full ownership of the assets. So for example, if you're transferring cash, you're telling them they're going to get this money, but probably not going to get it until they reach a certain age or a milestone in their life. Um, so it's a great way of removing the asset from your own estate, getting rid of your IHT liability on that and passing it on to the next generation or even the generation forward, um, but specifying what it should be used for um, and making sure they haven't, like, you haven't given it to someone that's really like an 18-year-old with loads of money could probably go pretty wild. Um, so it's just controlling what the money is going to be used for and ensuring that they're going to use it for the right purposes. I think... Um... I think on that, Trish, so just to pick up, so Trish is kind of effectively describing what we would call a variable discretionary trust here. Yeah. Um, and these are, these are certainly the vehicle that gives the greatest intergenerational longevity for a family. This isn't a one-generational thing. This truly could be one's children's children's children. Um, 
sometimes known as a family trust, if you kind of read about these things in the press in the past. And they do carry great benefits of control. Um, but there are also some tax consequences, you know, of using of using discretionary trust planning. And because a discretionary trust is a slightly more, you know, I use this phrase, it's, it's, it's a more nebulous entity than an individual, HMRC will apply pretty pronounced tax rates to discretionary trusts. They're not different to somebody that's that's an additional rate taxpayer already, somebody earning over £150,000 a year. But I've definitely come across client scenarios in the past where these trusts have been used perhaps not as efficiently as they might be. Certain assets have been held within the trust that, that perhaps don't tessellate perfectly with the trust structure itself. The other, the other thing that I think is is really meaningful, and maybe we can kind of come to talk about a little bit, is this idea that by settling assets into a discretionary trust, effectively what the set law, the donor, is saying is that I've either already given enough money directly to my beneficiaries that I that that, that I trust them with. Or perhaps I'm not yet comfortable with how my beneficiaries would manage this money if I gifted it directly to them. Um, and there can be all sorts of things and reasons that impact this. But, you know, I believe wholeheartedly that, that when a family has achieved a certain level of wealth, it's really important that open and honest conversations are are had throughout. Um because if you if you hide away the extent of your wealth from your children when they're 15, 20, 25, whatever it might be, how do you suddenly expect them when they turn 30, which is just an arbitrary and round number, how do you suddenly expect them to now know what to do with the opportunities afforded to them by accrued wealth? And so I think for families to talk, openly, maybe with the help of a third party, about the nature of their financial affairs from an early age, I think is really, it's really significant. My son is four, turning five. He's just just started at big school. I mean, it doesn't look that big, but he calls it big school. Um, and, you know, I put some money aside for him each month. My idea is that when he goes to secondary school and things start to cost more money and there's big school trips away... You know, I would like him to know that, that 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 my wife Helen and I will pay half, and the other half can come from his savings. And of course, it's all come from the left pocket and into the right. It's all come from the same place at outset. But I want him to know as he grows up that money isn't infinite. That once one does spend, you don't have it anymore. And I want him to know that not to ensure he grows up as a miser, but to ensure that he values the experiences that he has. He understands that transaction from scores on the board of, of, of money to utility and enjoyment in life. And I'm hoping, you know, if we get that right from the age of 11 to 18, by the time he goes out into, you know, the real big bad world, as much as there mm -hmm. is a big bad world in Surrey, um, he'll, you know, he'll kind of, he'll know how to behave. Um, and that will, that will only help him through his life. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point and it's interesting because we, we touched on that in um, another podcast actually where we were talking about financial education for children 
and and how in this day and age where you you tend to pay with everything by card it's harder for some children to grasp the value of money because the old school piggy bank where you physically held coins and you were able to earn pocket money and 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 have a savings pot it, you know, money is much more invisible these days. Um, so I completely agree. It is it is that financial education piece from a, a young age and, and something that we do with a lot of our clients as well is, is get the children involved at an age where the parents feel comfortable um, to actually start thinking about how to manage money and truly know the value of it because you're right. Otherwise, um, you know, if, if they do come into a large sum of money in the, the latter part of their life, it can be, it can be, um, you know, mismanaged at that point. But I think we've spoken a lot today about, you know, gifting money when it comes to reducing the value of your state. But what other ways are there to try and, and mitigate some of the tax one may pay uh, whilst being able to maintain control? Trish, have you got any thoughts on that? So um, I guess one of the key ways is to look at investments or opportunities or options that are available to you that are fully within your control, for example, pensions, um, but they don't sit within your estate, so they sit separate to you. They sit aside from your, outside your estate, so they're not taxable as part of your IHT liability. Um, and then I guess looking at options available in terms of exploring all the different reliefs available, so holding certain types of assets which are going to get 100% relief when you're computing your IHT liability or tax position. Um, Ed can probably touch more on the types of assets, but generally speaking, things like that. I guess another way to reduce your liability is if you do give more than 10% of your estate to charity on death, you actually reduce your rate down from 40% to 36%. So if you are generous and want to help like worthy causes, something to consider. Do you know, I, th- I think there are two areas that I'd highlight that, um, that are often ill-explored. So when I start to talk about when I start to talk about IHT planning with clients, you know, I've I've given an idea as to the the path that we go down. People are people are aware that they can gift, and that will create an IHT saving, right? But you know, gifting gifting means you don't have it anymore. Um, people are aware that they can spend it, and they don't have an IHT liability. The area that I have have never come across an unadvised client understanding is that they can they can actually loan money to a trust structure so let's say you have a sum of money that your that your chartered financial planner helps you understand that you that you don't need you could afford to gift it but for whatever reason you're just not really comfortable with that money not being yours anymore but you realize that you don't need <clears throat> you don't need the future appreciation in value you can loan that sum to a discretionary trust all of the appreciation in value belongs to the trust right from day 1 so you loan 500,000 pounds to a trust over the course of the next 5 years it goes up in value by 200 250,000 pounds that's all outside of your estate you don't need to survive a certain number of years you've just saved 80 100,000 pounds of inheritance tax full control over how it's invested got full control over who it will be distributed to eventually and actually for any point in time you want your originally loaned principal back either as 
kind of a quasi top up income, you know, a slow return of capital, albeit in lump sums, you can do that. And yet this is a hugely underexploited area. Um, hugely so. The other the other key tax break, I think, sits on, sorry, we're going to get a bit techie here, assets that qualify for business relief. So trading businesses within the UK um, can be treated as having a nil value for inheritance tax purposes, a 0% IHT rate. And that might seem really generous, but if you think it through, imagine... You know, imagine the Jones family who operate a furniture business, let's say, you know, and the value of the goodwill of the business is 500 grand and the value of the stock is four million pounds. Um, and that and that is left to the next generation down to endure for many years more generating national insurance contributions, income tax, etc. That business is going to fold if they have to find a 1.8 million pound IHT liability. That's why that's why business relief exists. But what we do now have, thanks to some very shrewd and savvy operators out there, is these uh, these vehicles which operate wholly to the letter of the law of qualification for business relief, but which enable retail clients to achieve that same kind of tax exemption that the Jones family achieved through their furniture store. Now, some of these investments are relatively higher risk. Um, I think it's important I say that. Um, but there are other investments that might be truly very palatable to the retail investor. There are different spaces that one operates in. Perhaps it could be renewable energy, which seems a very important sector given the destruction that we've caused to the planet over the last 120 years. Maybe it could be lending and leasing, which are fundamentally asset-backed activities. It can be the construction and operation of retirement homes, which seems very sensible to me, given the ageing population that we have. All the while knowing that actually once one has survived for two years and owned this asset for two years, the IHT liability on that sum is now gone. It's now a 0% IHT rate. You still have that money as yours. It's still wholly accessible at any time. There's some investment exposure, yes, but for those that are either of a relatively higher risk appetite, maybe happy to take some aimless at exposure, or those who, with regret, think a seven-year clock might be something they're unlikely to survive when it comes to their gifts in their lifetime, you know, I think looking at business relief is another, another really significant area. Absolutely. So I, I think it sounds like you know, bringing all this together, there there are quite a few different solutions available to to people in the UK. But you know, bringing it all together, it can be quite complicated. Bearing in mind what you mentioned, Ed, about making sure that you know, a before you start gifting, that you've actually done the feasibility study to find out whether it's going to be affordable for you. Because naturally, you know, one needs to protect their own you know, income needs throughout yeah. the course of, yeah. of retirement as people are continuing to live longer and longer. And then, you know, there's also defining what that liability might look like, where you might engage someone like Trish to really help uh, look at what tax is is payable on your estate. And then there are all these different solutions that you can then try and implement uh, in order to try and, and meet your goals and, and reduce that if that's what you want to do. Um, you know, things like, I mean, the seven-year clock, but you've also just touched on a two-year clock. It, it all sounds 
quite complicated. So, so Ed, what would be your advice on making this planning process as smooth as possible then? I think if, if you have a suspicion that you perhaps already have enough, um, don't shy away from thinking about it some more. Don't procrastinate. Don't put things off. Rather, grasp the nettle and start to think about who else in the world you would like to help and support. Financially, it could be your own family. It could be friends. I'd like us to talk a bit more about philanthropy, you know, on this pod before we kind of wrap, because there's there's a great story in that space that I read recently that I want to share. And we can talk about lifetime gifting and the tax breaks associated with that maybe in some more detail. But in the first instance, if you think you might have enough already, really think, okay, so who else would I like to look after? Reach out for some help from a trusted source of advice to sense check effectively your gut feel that you've maybe already got enough. And then, and then either with or without that individual's help, start to progress and develop your thoughts. It's, I can't stress enough what a fulfilling process it is as a financial planner to help clients with these conversations and discussions. And if it's fulfilling for me, you know, how must it feel for the client? They're the one that's doing all the heavy lifting, right? I'm doing the easy bit. You know, I've swallowed a few textbooks and I know how to ask a few questions. Um, it's the client that's worked to achieve what they have. It's the client that's going to potentially change individuals' lives or, or, or many hundreds or thousands of lives through philanthropy. Um, and so that would, yeah, that would be that would be what I'd say. I think I would echo echo Ed's like closing there because it is have the conversations earlier think about these things a lot earlier than rather than putting it off and just hoping for the best and then engage the help that's there to make sure you're being as efficient as possible and putting the right measures in place absolutely and I, I think Trish you touched on earlier around um, gifting to reduce the the tax payable on your estate from 40% down to 36%. Yeah. Um, but Edda, you've made a really good point that actually, you know, a lot of people focus on what's going to happen after they're gone. But what what we do find is really rewarding for clients is is using charitable trusts and philanthropy throughout their lifetime to be able to see the the good work that they're able to to contribute to do you know it's it i think it's one of the cruelest ironies is that leaving an estate in your will uh leaving a portion of your estate to charity is a hugely generous thing to do each pound can only go around once right so by doing that you're you're choosing to support a philanthropic cause rather than rather than somebody or something else and that clearly must mean that it's a cause that you care about. And you're presumably hoping when you leave that, that, that gift, that legacy, that it's going to be used to achieve great things for many people less fortunate than you for many tens of years to come. The cruelest irony is that you're never going to see that. Absolutely. How mad is that? It's just wrong. And this, this story I read recently... Um, it's about this lady Sally. It was, it, the story was written by a, a paraplanner, 
So a parent planner is somebody that works alongside a financial planner to help do some of the, the heavy lifting whilst we kind of swan around and, 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 and talk grandiose ideas. Um, but it was beautifully written. It was beautifully written. And Sally was a lady who, I think when the firms first started to help her, she was kind of mid-50s. And Sally had inherited money earlier in her life. And she'd always felt a bit guilty about the fact she'd inherited it. It stayed in this stock portfolio. It was effectively kind of a cherished stock portfolio, meaning she she had no real attachment to them herself, but the individual she'd inherited the portfolio from did, and so she didn't want to tinker or, with or change anything. And Sally was single. She had no desire to start a family, and then very sadly she became quite ill, and she had a, she had a reduced life expectancy. And in her will, um, she was leaving her estate, to charitable causes. Um, and all it took, all it took was a financial planner to not think, well, it's just Sally, you know, what does it, what does it matter anyway? She's clearly got enough. It All it took was a financial planner to say to Sally, Sally, if I could show you, you've definitely got enough for everything that you could ever want to do in the rest of your life. And we were to quantify that number together and there was some money left over are there any causes that you'd like to support in your lifetime rather than when ultimately you pass? And she said she wanted to support the the RNLI, the Royal National Lifeboat Institute, which, you know, weirdly my um, my wife's grandfather, Opa, supported hugely, um, which is probably how I kind of ended up reading the story. But um, Sally made a considerable gift in her lifetime to the RNLI interestingly, charities don't pay capital gains tax. So had Sally sold down this portfolio, 20p in the pound would have been off to HMRC. By the RNLI in cashing these holdings, there was no tax track. So she truly was choosing the beneficiary of the money. The RNLI, the gift was so generous, were able to use the money to buy a new boat. And each time this boat saved a person's life at sea, the RNLI asked the, the individuals they'd saved to write in a book for Sally. And she used to go there. She used to go to this, she used to go to this boatyard once a year and have lunch with, with some of the people that volunteered. And um, I get a bit emotional. It's ridiculous. It's not even anything to do with me, but that is why this sort of stuff matters because, you know, Sally saw the difference in her own lifetime. Lives were saved sooner than they would otherwise have been saved. And all it took was that was that first question. Isn't that such a beautiful story? It really is powerful, isn't it, to see the value of of what your your money can do during your lifetime to be used to something so special as that. No, I agree. I agree. Completely. It makes you think as well. It does make you think. Absolutely. I mean, I think we could probably go on and on all day about wonderful stories of how to how to use your wealth for good but um we are getting to the end of the podcast so thank you so much for joining me today i hope everyone has found that um really intriguing and insightful um and i think as we've alluded to i think it's really important to to take advice from someone who you trust in this area, because as, as we've just experienced with Ed, it's, it's not only a highly emotional 
area of planning, but it, it's also a highly complicated area of planning. So thank you both for your time today and um, thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. Thanks, Kayla. Thank you.